While uh, Gordon in the sermonette was reading Amos 8, 11, and that passage, I suddenly had a light bulb come on. I noticed something in that section that I had never seen before. It just suddenly came right out at me. Uh, it's talking there in Amos 8, 11 about a famine of the word. Oh, it will become not just a famine of the word, as Amos 4 shows, but an almost complete famine of the word. Not just a famine of bread and food, which there will be also, but a famine of God's Word. It says, won't be from sea to sea. If you go looking for God's Word, you won't find it from sea to sea. And I've quoted that many times. Uh, And that is, as a general overall statement, the way it will be. From coast to coast, along the coast, and perhaps all in between the coasts, It won't be found. But then it gets more specific. And this is the part that I hadn't noticed. It says they won't find it to the north or to the east. So anywhere in the north, it will not be able to be found. That would include the northwest, the northeast, the north. It won't be found in the east. That would include northeast, or southeast, because both of those are east. That only leaves one quadrant where it could possibly be found, and that is to the south and west. God is being very specific here. Not coast to coast is an overall thing, definitely not in the north or the east, so the only place you'll be able to find the truth will be somewhere in the southwest very interesting to comprehend. Well, maybe that's enough info for one day. Got another song? Ah, let's go on back to Matthew 5. I think we should do this. Well, in this series, we've seen the true attitudes that God is looking for in Christians today and the standard whereby we will be judged. And once he says those things, he says we'll be persecuted if we do have those attitudes. People will not like it. And then he gives us encouragement by showing that we will have great reward if we do what is right and have the right attitudes and are persecuted for them. That persecution is true martyrdom and will lead to the kingdom of God for us. And then he gives us encouragement to say that we are the salt of the earth, speaking of his true disciples. And if we qualify in all the areas that he has discussed prior to saying this, then we are included as part of that salt of the earth. And that, in a way, is comforting. I don't think there's much higher an accolade that can be given, let's say, in our modern culture than the term, that person is just the salt of the earth. We have other expressions we use to give someone high honor, and that is uh, something like, when they made that one, the mold was broken. Uh, we, we have our expressions to show that someone is special. And God is telling us here, through his Son, that his true disciples are truly the salt of the earth.
someone just made cheese the other day for the first time and uh, tasted it and, well, it wasn't quite salty enough. Tasted fine otherwise, but it just needed more salt to give it a flavor that was truly what it should be. And God has made His people to be the flavoring for this earth because the flavor of the earth to God is not right. And it needs something more. It needs us. So long as we follow the rules and the standard that God has made for us. So He's appointed us, called us out to be that flavoring, that savor that makes what is here palatable. And He said if His word, His standard, His way is not restored, He's going to smite the earth with a curse and destroy mankind as he almost did in Noah's day and backed off because of actually one man's righteousness saved his family with him. He's going to do the same thing here at the end except there are going to be a few more not just one man Noah but more people who are willing to follow God's ways and therefore are the salt of the earth. He also says in verse 15 that we're like a candle. Now when we have blackouts and electric goes down, we're not used to that, are we? We're used to just flipping on a switch and boom, room lights up. Wherever we go, we have switches to make light. And when the power goes down, we're lost. We fumble for a flashlight or we fumble for a candle something to make light so that we can see to do whatever it is that we might be wishing to do. Or some people just are scared of the dark. They need light so they feel comfortable. So he tells us, we're the salt for food and we're the light for the earth. Those are some pretty high accolades and recommendations. And while what we've been studying here is a very, very high standard and very difficult to achieve. The rewards are great, and the accolades from God are great if we accomplish it. So there's much to live for, much to accomplish, so that men, by seeing us, would glorify our Father in heaven. That's a pretty high standard right there, isn't it? Would people look at you? Would people look at me? And would that cause them to glorify our Heavenly Father? Think about that one. That's scary. There's an awful high standard set in this one teaching of our Savior. Very, very high standard. I was just, we just, some of us went to a, on a trip to Yellowstone and, and uh, Teton National Parks this last week. And I just heard a rumor when I got back. Someone said the scariest thing they saw on the whole trip was not a bear. It was me. And I guess I'm not enough of a glory to God yet. <laughs> I'm that scary. I know it was said in humor, and that's fine, and I, that's all right. 
just suddenly occurred to me. You know, here I'm supposed to cause people to glorify God. Said I'm just scary. I guess we have work to do. Then we covered this about he didn't come here to destroy the law. He came to live it. He came here to complete it. He came here to actually raise it to a higher standard, as we're seeing in this series of sermons. And he says, not one jot or one tittle, verse 18, will pass from the law till it is all accomplished. Some people say the Old Testament is done away. No, it's not. And what he is doing in this teaching is telling us how to look at the Old Testament. He's telling us to raise it from the physical to a truly spiritual plane. And he's going to give us some examples here. Uh, we covered one last time down in verses uh, 21 down to verse 26 where it talks about attitudes of the Old Testament. You simply could not kill someone, could not murder but now, he refines it a great deal and says you're not supposed to even hate. You're not supposed to be demeaning of character or put someone down made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. We all have the potential to become God. And God does not want us saying someone is a total fool or being unwilling to forgive them or holding a grudge against them. So that raises the standard a great deal. Before, you could hate all you wanted as long as you didn't kill. You could have a grudge throughout life as long as you didn't kill. Now you can't have character assassination, spiritual murder, which is going on in the churches today, or hatred or grudges, and you have to get over it by sundown. That's a pretty tall order. You ever get a real good mad going? Didn't want to give it up? Really upset. And you deserve to be upset, those dirty rats and what they did to you, and what they said about you, and you're not going to get over it till you're good and ready, and you're going to tell everybody else how badly they treated you as well. That's human, normal, common, fleshly, not godly not spiritual, but it's very human. No, he says, don't even come pray to me till you get over it. Don't bring your gift to my altar until you get past that or I will not hear you. Those are the words of God. So you might think you have a special relationship with God, but whoever that brother or that sister is that you're upset with, you have every right to be upset with because they really did do you wrong. So what if they did? Seven times seventy, Christ says, in one day. I doubt any of us have ever had a person do something to us 490 times in one day. Day isn't long enough for it. I mean, some might try, but you just can't do it that many times. It means unlimited, really. Not seven times, but seventy times seven and into infinity. So, the very first example he uses from the Old Testament does not do away with the Old Testament. 
it makes it far more demanding on us than what was demanded of Old Testament people. If you're going to be a New Testament Christian, you have a much higher standard to live up to than they did in the Old Testament. Just the way it is. But on the other hand, those people were not promised eternal life. We are. So the standard is higher, but the reward is also commensurately much higher. All right, let's go down then with that long introduction to where we left off last time. Uh, he's told us in verse 25 and 26 to, to get these things settled quickly, lest it uh, escalate into something even worse and you don't come out and you paid the uttermost farthing, or farthing, I mean. So, in verse 27 then, we're going to see it elevated again to a far higher standard than it ever had been in the Old Testament. He says, You've heard that it was said by them of old time, You shall not commit adultery. He's quoting from Exodus 20:14 in the Ten Commandments. Very much, I mean, that was one of the big ten. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So now we have a much higher standard. Before, you could look and you could lust. As long as you didn't touch, it was okay. There are a lot of women today in America who will tell their husbands, look all you want, don't touch. I've heard a lot of women say that. They realize probably that it would be futile to tell their husband you don't look. So they'll lay that on them. Just don't touch. Now God takes it much further than a lot of women dare to. For some women will slap their husband if he looks even. They take it a little further. But none of them probably take it quite as far as God does. God lays a lot on us, men. He really does. He's not just talking through his hat here. These are the words of the one who lived a perfect life, never lusted, ever committed adultery in his heart, in 33 and one-half years. None of you, nor I, have lived up to that standard through our entire lives. It just happened unless we're queer, and that's even worse, according to Romans 1. This is a tall order. This is a tough one. They're going to tell me I can't even look? Yeah, sorry about that. That's the way it is. Do you believe it? Are you willing to accept that standard? tough one to get your mind around. Let's go to James 1 for a moment. James 1. Verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So it is your own lust, your own desires, your wrong, wrong desires... And you're enticed 
by what you see. Then, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. So there's a pattern that starts. A look, a longer look, a covetousness or a lust or a desire develops, and that's sin, and it leads to greater sin, because if you think about something long enough, you'll probably wind up doing it, actually. That's just the way the human mind works. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Allowing yourself to lust after the female body, or the female itself, is sin, and it leads to death. Second Peter 2. Second Peter 2, verse 10. Verse 9, the Eternal knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and adultery and fornication is uncleanness. God made sex to be a wonderful and beautiful thing between a husband and a wife. That's the only place that it is to be utilized. One of the most wonderful things that God ever created. But it has to be properly used. And used outside of marriage, it is unclean, filthy, dirty, and wrong. Now, I know our society today does not teach us that. But God is the one that created it. He's the one that made it. He designed the male and the female bodies very, very specifically for those functions. And he looked upon everything he had made and he said, it is good. So it is a good thing. It's not a wrong thing. It's not evil. There are some religions, first of all the Catholic Church, out of so-called Christianity, that teaches little girls from the time that they're small that their bodies are evil and wrong and filthy and dirty and that sex is just for procreation, it isn't for enjoyment between husband and wife, that is a doctrine of demons. Touch not, taste not, handle not, only just to keep the family going. So they're ashamed of their bodies. And there are a lot of Catholic, girls raised Catholic, who are afraid to show their bodies even to their own husbands because of those things planted in their mind that are wrong. God says that a man is to enjoy his wife's breasts and be satisfied with them in Proverbs. Well, God made the female body for a husband to enjoy, appreciate, admire. Read the Song of Songs. You need more ammunition for that. I won't go there. I, that teaching is more Catholic. But you see, they're trying to scare and shame people out of doing something that is a natural drive and make it evil in a wrong way to keep them from doing it. Of course, the priests aren't listening much. Um, that's a whole different story. But God made it beautiful and wonderful. But you see, according to Ephesians 5, a marriage between a man and a woman are supposed to 
reflect Christ in the church and Christ desires faithfulness and love, loyalty in that relationship. And when Israel went after other lovers, he wound up divorcing her for it because it broke the trust, it broke the faithfulness, it broke the loyalty, it broke the relationship. And that's what happens in human marriages, always has, that that kind of activity breaks relationships, destroys trust, destroys love, and brings distrust, hate, divorce, breaks things. Can't be. Just cannot be. Now, if you think you can play with these things, you're going against what Christ says. Men somehow justify going to the nudie bars, and what do they do? They lust after bodies that are not their own wives. Maybe they don't take it that far. Maybe they just go to hamburger joints named Hooters and think that's okay. All they're doing is using sex and scantily clad girls to sell hamburgers because this world has discovered that sex sells, whether it's tires or cars or beer or hamburgers, whatever it is, if they can have scantily clad women and those who have sexually oriented moves on MTV and in commercials or whatever, that the beer sells better and the tires sell better and so do the pills or whatever they're trying to sell. We can't go there, fellas. We can't go there. Can you shut those commercials off? There is no excuse, period, to go to a restaurant that sells hamburgers with scantily clad women. There is no excuse, whatever, to go to a nudie bar. You are breaking what Christ said right here. Now, is that plain or not? For men to be at work and make comments or jeers or leers or comments about women they see walking by is wrong because it engenders lust. Is that iron sharpening iron and men helping each other to overcome a problem that they probably all have? Does that help them? Or does it just cause them to look more? And the next one that walked by is the other guy says, Hey, you see that? It's evil. It's sin. There is no justification for it, whatever. First John 2. Verse 15. John, 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How do we think we can compromise with the ways of this world and at the same time say, I love God? God's Word makes it very, very plain. You cannot do that. Another one says you can't serve God and man or God and money. 
You just can't do it. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So God has nothing to do with the lust of the flesh, the looking or lust of the eyes, or pride of life. But it's of the world, and the world passes away, and the lust thereof, that he that does the will of God abides forever. I think somewhere along the line, the Apostle John got the point that Christ was making in Matthew 5. Don't you think he got it? Seemed like he explained it in pretty simple, straightforward terms here. This isn't one of those things Paul wrote that's hard to understand. This is just hard to live. It's just hard to live. 1 Corinthians 10. I don't suppose we really need to go read all these scriptures, do we? I mean, we've read what Christ said there in Matthew 5. Isn't that enough? Eh, not enough. We're not getting it. 1 Corinthians 10. Talking about going into the wilderness, going through the Red Sea. Verse 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were, for, were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So what happened coming across the Red Sea while Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments was written for you and for me. What is it written for? It wasn't written for somebody else. It's for us. Neither be you idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and died in one day, 23,000. God brought a plague and killed 23,000 people because of fornication and adultery. That's his mind on this matter. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. When we look, men, upon a woman to lust after her, we are tempting God. Because God has set that standard that we aren't to do that. Now, he is after total mind control. Not him controlling it, not the church controlling it, but he tells you to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Every thought. Not to let any get away. Galatians 5. Galatians 5. Everything Paul wrote wasn't hard to understand. Verse 16. Galatians 5.16 This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Everything in a man's nature, everything in his body, every nerve he's got, 
makes him want to look, makes him want to touch. That's just the way we are. That has to be controlled, and it's not easy. It is not easy. Now, the top row to hope. What about the women's part in this? Are they culpable? Do they have anything to do with it? Are they involved in any way? A lot of women will dress seductively. They'll show their bodies. They'll emphasize their bodies. And they will dismiss it and say, you shouldn't look. That's right, we shouldn't look. But you do have a responsibility. You have a responsibility before God to help keep your brother from sinning. Men would not lust if there weren't women. They wouldn't. Because that's what they lust after. And you do have a responsibility. I'll show you that. You can't just dress to be looked at and then get indignant if someone does look. Now, you can't not be a woman. God wants you to be feminine. He wants you to look nice. But he does not want you to look sexy or to entice or induce or cause men to look at your bodies. And you need to dress in such a way that does not tempt them to look. It should not be seductive in any way. Otherwise, you help the temptation and you become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And for you to dress seductively is a sin before God. You do not have a right to do that. We'll see what God has to say about it here in just a moment. Let's go to 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, and verse 9. It's spelled out for you how God expects you to look. First Timothy, here one, chapter two. Now he's giving instruction here and attitudes that Timothy ought to have, and it's a pastoral letter telling him what to teach the churches, uh, what are the standards that should be followed. And he says in verse eight. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It needs to be in faith, and when we're sinning, it defiles our conscience, and it is very difficult to have faith in God, faith in salvation. In like manner also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Modest means modest. It does not mean immodest. With shamefacedness. That is, with humility, with meekness, not with selfishness and ego and vanity, but to be shamefaced or, let's say, easily embarrassed. 
woman, if her body is showing in a wrong way, should be easily embarrassed. Most of the women in our country today are not easily embarrassed. They will show way too much leg, way too much breast, way too much behind, way too much of any and everything, way too much tummy, way too much back, and they're not embarrassed about it or shamefaced at all. The saying is, I guess, if you got it, flaunt it. That is ungodly. It is not right. It should not be done. You got it, you should hide it from everyone except your husband. You can wear anything seductive you want to wear or nothing at all in your bedroom with your husband. And it's perfectly okay and even wonderful because God made it to be that way. But if it's not your own husband, then you are supposed to hide it. That's what modesty means. You've got it to be careful that no one but your husband can observe it, see it, hopefully keep them from lusting after it. That's your responsibility. He tells you right here in God's Word to dress modestly and be easily embarrassed and sober, not flitty or flighty, not like the women of this world are where, oh, it's just all party time, and you can dress any way you want to, and it's okay to seduce men, to get them to look, and then act like you're offended by it. So they're to have this attitude about it, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becomes women professing godliness with good works, not that which would lead to evil or sin, but good works. Now, does this mean that you should not have should not comb your hair or curl it or wear gold or pearls or expensive things? People use this to say you shouldn't wear gold and you shouldn't, you should have straight stringy hair. All right, if you're going to use that logic, then you shouldn't wear clothes either. Right? If this says you can't wear jewelry, then it's also saying you shouldn't wear clothes. Now we'll see some scriptures that show that God dressed his wife with fine clothes and with jewels. But you see, this tells you the attitude. The attitude should not be one of self-centeredness, selfishness, and you trying to look good for vanity's sake. You should look nice. God created male and female, and he said it's good. Women are beautiful to men, and that is good. But men are limited in how many women they're supposed to look at. With that thought, one. So it's your responsibility to be embarrassed if men look at you with that thought and try to dress so that that does not happen. 
to be extremely modest and try to keep men from looking. That's your responsibility as sisters. Godly attire. So, why do you wear jewelry? Why do you fix your hair? Is it because God made you to look nice, and you certainly want to look nice for your husband, and certainly it's okay to look good to others, but if it crosses a line which begins to incite lust or wrong thinking, then it's wrong. See, the object is not to attract attention to the self or your body. Now, what do women do today? They wear tattoos. They wear jewelry that's put in place strategically to cause you to look at certain areas. They wear clothes that are cut to make you look at certain areas. That's the way it is in our culture today, and it is ungodly, and it is wrong. If you're wearing things tight across the chest, it is wrong. Well, that's the way the styles are. Well, how come some woman that wears 400 pounds can find loose-fitting clothes? How can she do that when you can't? They do make them big enough to go around you. They really do. You can get a bigger size. Oh, wow, never thought of that unless you have an attitude that is wrong. Now, when you see someone sitting in a chair and she keeps tugging at her skirt, why? Because she's a little nervous or embarrassed that she might be showing what she's showing. She sits down in the skirt and it's above the knees, and if she moves her legs just wrong, you can see all the way up to Guinea. So she's trying to keep you from seeing that last two inches, I guess. So she tugs at it to keep that last two inches from showing. So if she doesn't have her legs crossed, she's in danger of showing that. And if she does cross her legs, then it shows clear up to the behind. So she sits and tugs at it. On some level, some level of consciousness, she realizes she's exposing more than she should is why she tugs. And you know what the tugging does? It causes men to look at what you're tugging at. That's what the tugging does. It's designed that way. You see them standing there tugging at their shirt. Why? Because they're allegedly covering their tummy or their hind end. But the tugging Take your eyes to what's being tugged at. Keep pulling the shirt up. Why? Keep it from flopping open. But the tugging causes you to look at what in the world's being tugged at there. Come on. Let's get real. When your dress or your pants cup your rear end, they're too tight. When a dress causes men to try to look up it, it's too short. When something you're wearing 
on your top is too tight or flops down when you bend over, it's not designed right. That's just the way it is. Now, part of this is attitude of wanting to flaunt it. You know, young men like to roll up their sleeves and show you the muscles that they're growing. And young ladies like to stick it out in front to show you what they're growing. Not something they're doing. They just kind of appear, don't they? Did you do that? No. God just designed it to happen that way. So why are you so proud? Everybody on earth has them. Well, half the people. Well, everybody does. It's just women different. Now, men will try to pass it off and say, well, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. No sense in looking. That's not the way a man thinks, girls. The way it really is, if you've seen them one, you want to see them all. You didn't know that. I'm telling you that. Seen one, you want to see them all. The way a man's mind works. God made men and women differently in the way they think and their emotions. And with a woman, generally and normally, needs more stimulation than a man. That's what flowers and nice words and I love you, and don't you look great, and various things like that, and touching and foreplay and all those things, are for. Because a woman naturally and normally needs that kind of attention to stimulate her in that way. But let me tell you something, girls. Men aren't that way. Men have... Instant starters. The starter doesn't crank. Just like that. A millisecond's look, a scent of perfume, it doesn't take much. And a man's mind gets going. Sorry, that's just the way it is. And you need to understand that. Because if you don't understand that, it's easier for you to make mistakes. Now, God made men that way. They, they're direct wired from their head down. Number 10 wire. It doesn't have any crooks in it. It's just all right straight to the there. The way it is. You need to understand that. And you need to learn to make allowance for that. Now, I'm not saying it's your fault. God tells us, don't look, don't lust. That's our part of the equation. But as a sister in Christ, thinking godly, you have a responsibility to have the right attitude in the way you dress and not to be flaunting it or showing it or wearing things that would make a man look. That's your part of the responsibility, and God lays it out for you. That's not me. That's God. That's to dress modestly and to be easily embarrassed. Easily embarrassed. Women in the today's society are not easily embarrassed. 
You don't have to wear tight shorts or short shorts. You don't have to wear tight dresses or short dresses. You don't have to wear low-cut blouses or blouses that show when you move. It's wrong. What about shorts, period? I don't know exactly how to explain this, but when a girl has shorts that are above her knee or a dress that is above her knee, there is a definite difference. How do I explain that? I guess to the male mind, if it's a short skirt, there's always a possibility that you might be able to look up it. If it's shorts that have material at the top, there's not a possibility of seeing, so it's less interesting. It's less seductive. I don't think shorts are necessarily wrong if they're a little above the knee. But I think short skirts that are above the knee are certainly borderline at causing a man to want to look. It's just a bigger problem. You know, if you got on shorts down a couple, three inches above your knee, and you sit down, you're not always tugging at those shorts so your thigh or your crotch doesn't show, are you? No, because you know it isn't. But if you've got that short skirt on, you're tugging at it, and you're trying to sit in just such a way, and then you sit at the table, and you forget, and the legs come open. I remember trying to preach down in Florida back in the days of burn the bra and mini skirts, micro minis. And there was one family that came up from around Jacksonville, had two daughters, must have been, I don't know, 17 to 21 years of age, wearing micro minis, and they'd sit on the front row. And you're trying to preach Christ? Now, maybe I'm being a little more dramatic here than I need to be. I don't know. But we're in a world that is dramatic, and we're in a world that is totally wrong. And I think it needs to be laid out pretty clearly and pretty plainly. We're talking about a subject here that can cost you eternal life and the kingdom of God. So we need to take it seriously. When Christ said that, he meant it. When we read these scriptures we've just read, he meant it. Let's go to Isaiah 3 for a moment. We're talking here about attitude, and attitude is reflected in the way we dress. Verse 16 of Isaiah 3, Moreover, the Eternal says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, that is, vain, lifted up in their own eyes, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes. They dress the eyes up to look enticing. They dress the body up to look enticing. It's all about an attitude. And he says, God says, if you got it and you flaunt it, this is what I will do to you. Verse 17. Therefore the Eternal will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Eternal will make naked their secret heart just what he's going to do, the tribulation that is to come. If you want to send invading armies that will strip your clothes off you, if you are seductive and have that attitude, 
and there will be rape, every other foul thing you can think of. God is going to bring it on us because of these attitudes. Verse 24, shall come to pass, and instead of a sweet smell of perfume, there shall be a stink, and instead of a girdle, a split clothing, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and burning instead of beauty. That's what God says he's going to bring to a nation that dresses to show it off. That nation that is not easily embarrassed. Let's go to Ezekiel 23. Let's see. Verse 25. God, God is a jealous God. We know that. I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall take away your nose and your ears, and your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and your daughters, and your residue shall be destroyed by the fire. They shall also strip you out of your clothes and take away your fine jewelry. Thus will I make your lewdness to cease from you, and your whoredom brought from the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. This is an end-time prophecy to the church today. God will either take you to a place of safety because you are modest and not vain and trying to flaunt it if you got it, but because you are modest and because you want to help keep your brother from sinning, you may be protected. But if you go the way of this world, he says you'll have your clothes stripped off, you'll be raped and killed, along with the rest of Israel. That's just God's assessment of the situation. Now, women sometimes ask, well then, how short is too short for my hair? How short is too short for my skirt? How much cleavage can I show? And we had to get going in the church, oh, back in the 60s, or even from Pasadena, the ministry began to measure. Women had to kneel down on the floor and see how much their skirt came above their knees. Or, can you believe it, actually measure inches of cleavage. Those things were literally done in God's church. That in itself is an abomination. The ministry got way out of line there. On the other hand, the women were way out of line too. And it should not have been taken to that extreme. It shouldn't have even had to have been discussed or talked about, much less measured, if the attitude had been right and the women had been dressing properly. All I can say is, be sure God will protect you. Be sure God is pleased. Be sure you are modest. Be sure you are easily embarrassed by the amount of body you are showing and the way the clothes fit it. Because you don't necessarily have to see flesh for men to be interested. It's the tightness and the way it fits, sometimes just as much as whether skin is showing or not. I 
Maybe it's hard for you women to understand how a man's mind works. I don't know. Women are getting more and more that way, though, as we go into depravity in their approach. Even they are beginning to get to the point in this country where they begin to think toward men the way men have always thought toward women. That is wrong, and it is unnatural. Let's go to Well, I'll just quote a little bit from Ezekiel 16. Maybe we've had nearly enough of this. Think so? Maybe we're getting the point. Maybe we see it. Maybe we can understand it. I understand it's very hard for the men not to look. It's also very, very hard for you gals to change some attitudes and some habits and the way you buy clothes. But it needs to be done. And I don't want us to have to go to a dress code Maybe like the plagues over here, oh, where you wear it down to the ankles and up to the neck and down to the wrists and loose all over. I wouldn't want us to have to legislate that. You wouldn't either. So, take a hint. Not just a hint, really, is it? Pretty strong words from God in these scriptures. Women do have a responsibility. Now, God did allow Israel to wear jewels on his wife. He dressed her up with fine clothes. He dressed her up with jewelry. But she misused those and abused them to entice political lovers and physical Israelites used them to entice physical lovers. Now, you might say, well, that's not my goal or my purpose. I just want to look nice. All right. I'll swallow that. Big lump. To some degree. But you need to look nice to God. And you need to be careful that you do not entice boys and men to look at you. You need to be sure your body is covered in such a way that it's not tight and it doesn't show too much skin. Just need to do that. Don't blame it all on us. Do it for us. We have a big fight. And we have it thrown at us day in and day out wherever we go. You cannot go anywhere in this society without seeing women that are dressed to make either other women look or men to look or for them to look in the mirror and say, Oh, how wonderful I am. They've got different reasons for doing it, maybe, but the, the result is the same, and it's not right. Now, I know that I am risking the anger and the ire and the frustration of the females by talking about this, by bringing it up, by even admonishing you, and most of the ministry and most of the churches simply will not touch this. They just let it go on. But we are admonished to cry aloud and to spare not. And to tell God's people their sin. It is a sin for a man to look and to lust. And it is a sin for a woman.
woman to dress in any way that would cause a man to look or to love. If you get mad at me for doing it, it's okay. I accept that. I accept that if I cry aloud and read God's Word, even on sacred cow issues, that some will not like it, and they will resist it. I'm sorry. The way it is. I want to be in the kingdom of God. And I have enough of a fight, whether I have to fight it in church or on this land. So do the rest of these guys. Help us, would you? Please? Going on in Matthew 5, verse 29. And if your right eye offend you, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into hell, or the grave, or the fire, Gehenna fire. Now this is an extension of what we've just been talking about. Say, so, you know, your body, you want in the kingdom of God. You want to change. You want to be glorified. But there's some part of that body that's causing problems for you, You've got to cut it out. In a way, in a way, pluck it out or cut it off. Now that doesn't mean to do it physically. That won't help you. All of us men have seen enough that we could reach in and pluck both our eyes out and we could still have lots of images in our mind to entertain. So plucking the eye physically out won't solve the problem. You have to shut it out of your mind. You have to keep your eye from looking. You have to turn your head when tempted. You have to change the channel when the scantily clad girls come on. And that's just about every station break. Every commercial. You don't have many commercials that don't have a sexual connotation of one kind or another. Very few of them. So you've got to take that away from your eyes. And look at that. Thankfully, I have a wife who's very good with a remote. She can click them off in a hurry. Be more coordinated at it than I am. And it takes me a little while to get that button sound. She's good at it. I'm thankful for that. That helps me. That TV something you've got to be very, very careful with. Very, very careful with. And as time goes on month by month and I'm trying to do what's right, I'm finding there's less and less and less on there that I can watch. In fact, there's really not very much on there you can watch. So you've got to take that away from your eyes. Don't let your eye 
destroy you, in other words. That's what the scripture is saying. Don't let your eyes destroy you. If your right hand offend you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into the lake of fire. Oh, well, the, the eye symbolizes what you take into your mind. The hand symbolizes what you do with your body. So not only are you not supposed to look, but if your hand betrays you and you want to touch as well, then cut that part away. Don't let your hand or your eye deceive you, destroy you, or keep you from the kingdom of God. It's a real danger, is it not? He says here, don't look, don't lust, and if your eye or your hand betrays you, you'd better take them out of the equation lest they cost you eternal life. I don't know how more serious this could get to you. Eternal death for this infraction. When God says come out of Babylon and come out of Egypt, He means it. You don't want us fooling around. We're not to look like the world or act like the world. I wish we could get that, but it's hard for us because we've been raised in this, we've been trained in this. That's the example we see all around us. And it's really, really hard to swim upstream. It's really, really hard to do the standard of God. All right? It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. You'll find that in Deuteronomy 24. And the upshot of Deuteronomy 24 is that a man was king of his castle, and he could put away a wife for partner to any reason he came up with. It was fairly unlimited. Not so in the New Testament. But I say to you, that whosoever shall put away his wife except for the cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever... <coughs> shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. So he narrows the confines of the capacity to put your wife away very dramatically in the New Testament. Now there was some misunderstanding in the church over this verse. Herbert Armstrong misunderstood it. Never did understand it as long as he lived, although he did remarry. And that is in the word fornication, which comes from the Greek porneia. He felt that porneia meant premarital fornication between two unmarried people. And he felt that it was limited to that, and that's why Joseph could put away Mary, because that which was in her was by the Holy Spirit, not by him or another man. And he felt that this limited it, so that if you lied and said, no, I'm a virgin, time you were getting married and you were in fact defrauding and you weren't, that when your mate found out that you had lied to them, you could put them away. That would be more of an annulment than it would be a divorce. 
but it is provable by example in the Bible, not just by striving over Greek words, that porneia includes adultery after marriage. It includes homosexuality. It includes all kinds of immorality, bestiality, whatever it might be. I can prove that, not just by going to Greek definitions, which actually do prove it, but let's go to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 20. He's writing here to the church at Thyatira, which is an end-time church. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you suffered that woman Jezebel. Jezebel was a married woman. So the example that is used by John in the book of Revelation is about a married woman, okay? You can go back to 1 Kings 16 and read about it. That woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, she was a false prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. The word there is porneia and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, a woman with this attitude was teaching that you can fornicate with the world. This isn't just physical sex, because I doubt there's a church, could be, but I doubt, among the three or 400 splits from worldwide, I doubt there is any of the women, any of the churches, that would outright teach that it's okay to fornicate or to commit adultery. I mean, if they tend, pretend to be Christian at all, you would think that they would not teach that. But adultery with the world, adultery with the system, fornicating with the society, thinking and acting the way of the world, a lot of them let that go by the boards, don't teach against it, and indeed actually allow it. We're here to be sure that does not happen. But she doesn't just teach her servants to do that. Let's read on. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then they commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. She was a married woman, according to the account in Kings. Here it talks about her committing adultery, which is a married woman. Adultery is between, is between people who are married to someone else and have someone else as a partner. So she, Jezebel, was committing adultery. She was also committing porneia. Porneia, then, by example, includes adultery, because this is a married woman doing it. So, when Christ says in Matthew 5, you cannot divorce her except for porneia, it includes Fraud, yes, as Mr. Armstrong understood it. It also includes adultery within the marriage. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He divorced Israel because of adultery after the marriage. People say, well, that was Old Testament. But we have an example in the New Testament in Revelation 2 of a married woman committing porneia. So the Greek definitions of this word as stated in the Greek, include more than just premarital fornication. Now let's go back to Matthew 5. 
I say to you, we're upgrading this, in other words, that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of immoral acts would fit in here, just would fit better, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Let's go to Matthew 19. I'll hit one or two more here. Time is getting to be. We're about done. Matthew 19, it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. Great multitudes followed him, and he healed up there. The Pharisees also came to him, tempting him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any and every cause? They're quoting Deuteronomy 24. They want to know what he would say about the law of Moses, because they looked to Moses. What do you say? He answered and said to them, Have you not read? that he which made them at the beginning made the male and female, of Edward Genesis, yeah, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. <coughs> you are not supposed to live with your father and mother and bring your wife into their home, as is getting fairly common in America today. You're supposed to leave father and mother and cleave to your wife. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Well, they had a question about that. They say to them, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Here again, he points them back to God's original intent and everything. What was God's original intent in the Garden of Eden? I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for sexual immorality, and shall marry another, commits adultery, and whoso marries her, which is put away, does commit adultery. So there is a legitimate reason for putting away a wife or a husband today, and that is adultery, or porneia in some form sexual immorality, homosexuality, adultery, bestiality, whatever it might be. God makes an exception for that. Why? It ruins the relationships. It breaks them. It brings distrust. It brings fighting, disharmony. It can bring disease, AIDS, syphilis, gonorrhea, all kinds of STDs out there today, herpes, you name it. God does not expect you to put up with that. If you've got a mate that's going to run around on you, you have every right in God's eyes to divorce them, and you are free to marry. You are not bound to them anymore. That's what divorce is. That is according to Scripture. There is one other reason God allows it. That was not instituted here. It was instituted in 1 Corinthians 7 by Paul, where he said, if you have an unconverted mate... And they will not let you obey God in peace, but they fight you and fight you and fight you, that you have the right to put them away, and that you are not bound or under bondage. You are not bound together under those circumstances. And yes, I know about Romans 6. We don't have time to go there today. I have an article on the website that goes through all of these scriptures and more and explains it very clearly so that all scriptures fit together. Most people who do not accept what I'm saying today dwell on one or two or three scriptures, and they do not put them all together. 
But in the case of an unconverted maid, God takes responsibility if he calls one and not the other because Acts 5.29 says obey God rather than man. So if there's a conflict between you and your mate over you obeying God or teaching your children God's ways, you have the right to divorce and you are not bound. If they're pleased to dwell, it says dwell with them. But if they show they are not pleased to dwell and they fight you over religion, God makes it clear there. Now, Paul said this isn't from the Lord, isn't something Christ said in Matthew 5 or 19 or Romans 6. It's something Paul said because of the circumstance in the church in that day. But God saw that it was put in Scripture. So it no longer is Paul's word. Once it got put in Scripture, it is now God's word. Okay? If you have questions on that, read the article. But the restraint is very great. We're supposed to straighten out our marriages and cause them to come to be like that between Christ and the church. Now, he has a potential bride right now that has her own mind. She has her own way of dressing. She has her own way of acting. She has her own way of living. And he says, modify it or else. You're a candidate to be my bride, but you must modify your behavior or I will strip you naked, you will be at the mercy of the Gentiles, and you will not be in my kingdom. That's the way it is. Cause and effect. He's telling us here how we have to look at Old Testament scriptures. Not only are they still in effect, but they are upgraded to be even more binding, and in many cases... The physical instruction from the Old Testament needs to be raised to a spiritual level. And we'll see that as we go on. But uh, sometimes it is not the physical that is important at all, but it's the spiritual application. Paul makes it very clear, for instance, that circumcision of the flesh, physically on boys, is not necessary and is totally meaningless. Now, in ancient Israel, that little piece of flesh going away was to indicate that you were truly an Israelite. And it was real easy if you captured a bunch of people and it says, oh, we're Israelites. All right? Down with the shorts, boys. We'll see. That's how you determined it. And if you were not clipped, you had your head clipped off. Simple. But now it is spiritually discerned. Are we living by the Spirit? Are we following God's ways? So he says it's circumcision of the heart now that counts, and Paul makes it very clear in several scriptures that circumcision of the flesh is no longer in effect. Does that mean circumcision's done away? Not at all. It's just in a different form with greater meaning. So the flesh matters not. But the circumcision of the heart, where you cut away that part of your heart which is carnal and fleshly and evil and vain, has to go away. That's the part that has to be clipped off. Just like he says about your eye or your hand, if you are prone to look and lust. 
Does that mean we should walk around and not see women at all? No. They just need to be careful that they dress femininely and modestly so that we can look at them and look them in the eye and see by their hair and by their eyes and by their attitudes that they are women of God. And we should not be able to look at the way they're dressed and think, that looks like a woman of the world. That's the difference that there should be. That's what God wants in His bride. He wants His bride to prepare herself totally for Him, men and women, and they're not to look at the world. You can't be friends with the world. You can't fellowship with the world. You can't act, look like, or have the attitude of the world. Your attitude and mind has to be on your husband to be when he returns. That is what he requires of us. That's why he is so strict in what he says here. It's because he wants our focus where it should be, and we should not have wandering eyes. We've got to take that part away from us if it's there. And then once we're married to him, we're to be faithful and true forevermore. We need to be showing that in our marriages today. Not just, am I cheating, but am I cheating with my eyes? tough one, fellows, but we're called on by Almighty God to live up to it. That's why this is entitled God's Standard for Us.